Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are our great high priest whose name is love. You have poured out love upon us in so many ways. Particularly, you have shown your love through your death upon the cross for our sins and for our salvation. Our Lord God, we pray you would show your love to us once again, that as I preach and as we read from Matthew's gospel, you would speak to us powerfully and wonderfully. Meet with each of us this morning during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we read from Matthew chapter 3, where John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness and he preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And his preaching was absolutely correct. It was spot on. The kingdom of heaven truly had come near for the king had come. The kingdom of heaven had come near to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, the true king of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus had come to earth to establish his kingdom. This week, Matthew answers a very important question. And the questions he answers are this. Who is this king? Who is Jesus? What is he like? And what kind of king will he be? If you aren't a Christian, this morning's sermon will be an opportunity to consider Jesus Christ. Uh, If you've ever wondered, why do Christians make so much of Jesus? Why do Christians love Jesus so much? I hope by the end of this sermon, you will know something of the answer to that question. And if you're a Christian watching this this morning, then this morning's sermon is an opportunity to know King Jesus even better than you already know him. Shall we read together? I'm going to read Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through to Matthew 4, verse 11. Matthew 3, 13 through to chapter 4, verse 11. And this is what the word of God says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, 
throw yourself down. For it, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, according to that passage of scripture, who is Jesus and what is he like? And the answer given by Matthew 3:13 through to 4:11 is this. King Jesus is completely an utterly good. King Jesus is completely and utterly good. And so let us think about the goodness of King Jesus. Now Jesus uses a slightly different phrase in that passage to describe his goodness. So have a look at Matthew 3 verse 15 where Jesus speaks about fulfilling all righteousness. The reason Jesus has to be baptised is because he needs to fulfil all righteousness. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there is there is a standard of righteousness that must be met. And Jesus defines that standard of righteousness a couple of chapters later in Matthew 5 verse 48. So in Matthew 5 verse 48, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So Jesus is saying there's a standard of righteousness that must be met and that standard is perfection. And what we see in this passage and throughout the whole gospel of Matthew, in fact throughout the whole Bible, is that Jesus fulfills that standard of righteousness. Jesus meets that perfect criteria of goodness through his life and deeds. That's what we see in chapters three and four of Matthew's gospel is Jesus's perfect righteousness, his complete and utter goodness. But the beauty, the beauty of this passage is in the detail. By observing the details of chapter 3 and chapter 4, we don't just declare that Jesus is righteous, that he's completely and utterly good, but we are shown in the details of chapter 3 and chapter 4, we're shown the shape of Jesus's righteousness. What does Jesus's goodness look like? Well, we can see the answer to that question in this passage. And so firstly, in chapter 3, we see that Jesus' baptism is part of his righteousness. Now, earlier in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist has described his baptism as a baptism 
of repentance, a baptism of turning from sin, turning away from a life of sin, being washed clean in a spiritual sense in the waters of baptism and turning to God and following him. But Jesus has never sinned. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to turn away from sin because he's never gone down the road of sin. He's lived his whole life in faithful obedience to God. So why does Jesus need to get baptised? The answer is this. Water baptism is one of God's commands, one of God's requirements for righteousness. Water baptism is a necessary part of righteous living. And Jesus, even though he has never sinned, Jesus in his righteousness honours every divine decree. And so that's what he's doing in being, in being baptised. He is observing, he's obeying the, the righteous decrees of God, his Father in heaven. A proud man might have agreed with John in verse 14. I mean, have a look at verse 14. A proud man might have responded to John by going, yeah, you're right. I don't need to be baptised by you. I'm far greater than you. You need to be baptised by me. That's how Jesus could have responded if he was a proud man. And you know what? We show that same proud attitude all the time in our lives. We think things like this. If the road is clear and there are no speed cameras, do I really need to obey the speed limit? If my neighbour or my colleague or someone I know is constantly rude and unhelpful to me, do I really have to love them? Do I really have to pray for them? Really? That person? Or even we can show pride in this way. If I'm saved anyway, do I really need to obey God and receive water baptism? But Jesus was never proud. He was humble to submit himself to the decrees of his heavenly father. And he was humble. He was humble even to submit himself to John the Baptist and receive John's baptism. Jesus was never proud. Part of his righteousness was his complete humility. Or consider the inconvenience of getting baptised, the, the inconvenience of this whole episode for Jesus. Jesus has to travel to the wilderness, he has to travel to the River Jordan, he has to go and find John. Those details are mentioned in verse 13. It seems like a massive hassle to go all the way to the River Jordan to, in order to get baptised by John. A less righteous person would fail to do what was right because it was inconvenient. You know, one of the most insightful things I've read about George Floyd and racism uh, in general in this world was a confession by someone. And, and um, someone had written this confession, and in the confession they'd written this. Far too often I have ignored injustices because it was convenient to do so. Far too often I have ignored injustices 
because it was convenient to do so. I don't know about you, but that convicts me. Isn't that true? That so often in our lives, we choose convenience over righteousness. We want to do the right thing. We want to be good people. But really, we only want to be good people and do the right thing if it's convenient to us. If it gets in the way of the way we want to do life, then often we will choose not to do the right thing. We will choose our own convenience and our own comfort over doing what is right. On the issue of racial inequality, this is especially true. It's hard work to educate ourselves on this issue. It's hard work to research where we should give our money. What should we support? We need to look into the details of the charities that say they fight for racial, fight against racial inequality. And we need to do research. It takes effort. It takes time. It's, it's inconvenience to write to MPs, to, to ask them to take this issue seriously and to vote in certain ways on certain votes. It's slightly awkward to speak out and to say something. And it's hard work forming the right words to say and speaking and saying the right thing. All these things are very inconvenient. And so we decide to choose our own convenience over doing what is right. So often on this issue and on other issues, we choose what is convenient rather than what is the right thing to do. But not Jesus. Throughout his life, Jesus chose righteousness over convenience. You see this as he's going about through the towns. He sees people who are sick and in need of healing and he stops what he's doing and he turns and he prays for them. You see moments where he doesn't even eat as crowds and crowds of people come to receive prayer and healing from him. Over and over again, Jesus chooses to do what is right rather than to do what is convenient. And it's true here in his baptism as well. He chooses to righteously obey the commands of God his Father and submit himself to baptism, even though it's quite an inconvenient thing to do. Jesus, in his baptism, shows us what righteousness looks like. And we continue to see Jesus's righteousness in chapter four as well. Jesus shows his righteousness in that he obeys the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness and Jesus obeys that direction. We see Jesus's righteousness in fasting. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, something only Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament were able to do. And there's something that's pointing back, alluding back to Moses and Elijah in Jesus's long term fast in the wilderness. We see Jesus's righteousness in the way he resists all of Satan's temptations. We see Jesus's righteousness in that he is able to quote scripture to rebuke Satan on three occasions. When Satan brings the temptation, Jesus knows he's memorized the Bible and he can speak words to rebuke Satan and, and push Satan away and not give in to the temptations. Jesus's mastery of the word of God is part of his righteousness. And so let's look at those three temptations, those three occasions in chapter four where Satan tempts Jesus. We get a better picture of the righteousness, the utter goodness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. So firstly, Satan says to Jesus, 
if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus refuses by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Genesis chapter 25, when Esau was hungry, instead of trusting God to provide the food and sustenance that Esau needed, Esau sold his inheritance. He sold his birthright to his younger brother Jacob. And, he, and in return for his birthright, Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Esau did not trust in the Lord's provision and made a very silly decision. But Jesus always trusted in his father's provision. In this moment, to obey Satan would have been to deny that God is going to provide for him. To turn those stones into loaves of bread would, to say, would be to say God is not providing what I need. Instead, Jesus' Jesus's obedience depended upon believing God's promises to provide. Jesus believed the word of God. He trusted in God's promises and therefore Jesus knew. Life does not ultimately come from eating bread, but from trusting God's word. Life does not come from eating bread, but from trusting God's word. This is true of eternal life. You know, I'll tell you something this morning. However much bread you eat in your life, that bread will never give you everlasting life. Even if you gathered all the bread of the world and ate continuously, continuously eating bread, you would not have everlasting life. In fact, I venture a guess, you'd probably die sooner rather than later. Eating bread will never give you eternal life. But everlasting life comes from believing the word of God by putting your faith in God's promise of salvation in Jesus Christ, you can receive eternal, everlasting life. So in that sense, the word of God gives life to the person who believes it. If that's not you, if you've never put your faith in God's salvation through Jesus Christ, I plead with you now. I plead with you this morning. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are headed from you're headed for eternal destruction, destruction, eternal damnation, unless you turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you believe in God's promise of salvation through Christ, you will have glorious, wonderful, joyful, everlasting life. Turn, turn to Jesus. Put your faith in him now. Say it out loud now. I have I put my faith in Jesus Christ. So eternal life comes from the word of God but also real life to the full here on earth comes from God's word, not from eating bread. Eating bread does not bring life to the full that Jesus promises. And so if you are weary, if you need energy, if you need greater perseverance this morning, and we all go through moments like that, Christians or non-Christians, we all go through moments where we just feel tired. 
We just feel like we need more energy. We just feel like perseverance is dragging on longer and longer. If that's you this morning, go to God's word. Read it and believe it this morning. Because Jesus shows in this temptation and the way he rebukes Satan that Jesus in his righteousness was drawing strength from the word of God. In the second temptation, Satan says in verse 6, throw yourself down from the top of the temple. And he misuses quotes from the Old Testament in order to try and convince Jesus to throw himself from the top of the temple in order that angels might catch him and lift him back up again. But Jesus responds in verse 7 by saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus's righteousness here is revealed in his faith. Jesus's faith is so great in this moment that he does not need to test God by throwing himself from the top of the temple. You know, someone might argue if he really believed, he would just jump off the temple, believing that the angels would catch him. But no, true faith was revealed in saying, I don't need to test God. I don't need to jump off of this temple. I know that the Lord is protecting me. I don't need to prove it and test him by jumping off from the top of the temple. In Exodus chapter 17, at Massar Meribah, the Israelites were thirsty. They too were in the wilderness and they too were thirsty and they doubted God. Some of the people, some of the Israelites were saying, is God with us or not? We're so thirsty. How can we possibly believe God is here with us? And so Moses goes to God and explains this and God does a miracle in Exodus 17. Moses strikes the rock and water bursts forth from the rock so that the Israelites can drink. But after the miracle, the Israelites are rebuked for testing God. You see what was going on in the Israelites' mind at that time? They were doubting God's existence or they were doubting that God was with them and for them. And so they needed to see a miracle to restore their faith. Sometimes we do the same in the modern church, in our hunger to see miracles. We, we desire miracles not because we care for someone who needs healing or we care for someone in need. We don't desire miracles because we're compassionate, but rather we, we desire miracles because we have an internal doubt. We doubt God's existence. We doubt he is here. We doubt he is for us. And so we, we pray and eagerly desire miracles in order that God would prove himself. In other words, our, our desire for miracles sometimes can be a, a testing of God. And so if you're someone who eagerly desires miracles and prays for miracles often, just test your motives in that area. Ask yourself, am I desiring miracles because I'm compassionate upon the people? And I want people to believe in Jesus Christ. I want people to receive healing. I want people to have their needs met. Or are you desiring miracles because there's, there's doubt in your heart and you want God to prove himself to you? That's a very important distinction. Jesus is not like us. And he's not like the Israelites in Exodus 17. Jesus has complete faith 
in God's protection. And so he does not need to test God by throwing himself down from the top of the temple. He was truly righteous in his complete faith in God. Thirdly then, Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. He takes Jesus up a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to Jesus, worship me, bow down before me, and I will give you all these kingdoms and all this glory. Incidentally, that's a very empty promise from Satan. Do you remember last week we read from Daniel chapter 2, which uh, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel brings a prophecy about the kingdom of heaven. And Daniel says that the kingdom of heaven will break into pieces all the kingdoms of this world. So what Satan is doing here is, is saying to Jesus, I can give you this king, these kingdoms and their glory. But the prophecy from Daniel says all those kingdoms are going to be destroyed. And Jesus is the king of heaven. So he has this eternal kingdom that he will be king of rather than these temporary kingdoms that Satan is promising. It's a very empty promise, a very empty offer from Satan. And that's actually true of all sinful temptation. Sinful temptation offers temporary gain or pleasure in return for eternal emptiness. Every time you're tempted to sin, that temptation, the, the context of that temptation is Satan saying, hey, choose temporary pleasure, choose temporary gain. You're going to miss out on eternal glory and pleasure, but choose, it, choose the temporary pleasure now. That's how Satan works. That how, that's how sin tempts us. Jesus, incidentally, does the opposite. Jesus asks Christians to take on temporary sacrifice in order to enjoy eternal glory and lasting joy. So the offer of Christians is to say, actually, yeah, in some areas of your life, you're going to have to make sacrifices. But when you make those sacrifices, when you repent of that sin and believe in Christ, you receive eternal, lasting glory and joy. It's a glorious, wonderful trade off. And Satan offers temporary short term pleasure. Jesus offers lasting, eternal joy and glory. So Satan says, worship me and I'll give you these kingdoms and all their glory. Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus here reveals his ultimate righteousness. His adoration, his service, his praise, his worship was given to the Lord God and God alone. This is what true righteousness really looks like, to worship God and to worship God only. In this moment, Jesus says, be gone, Satan, and Satan flees. He has been defeated. He has tempted Jesus numerous times, but three times in particular, in the wilderness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ has prevailed each and every time. And so in chapter three and chapter four, Jesus is shown to be completely and 
utterly good. The king of the kingdom of heaven is perfectly righteous, completely good. But why does that matter? Why does Jesus's righteousness matter? What difference does it make to you and to me? Well, firstly, Jesus's righteousness serves as an example to us. Following Jesus's example, Christians should receive water baptism. We should follow his example. All Christians should be baptised in water. All Christians should be humble like Jesus, not not proud, but submitting to God-given authority. We should be humble and we should do good even when it's inconvenient. All Christians should fast, perhaps not for 40 days and 40 nights, but fasting is part of a Christian lifestyle. We should set aside 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours and say, I'm going to go without food for that time. Fasting is part of a righteous life. Christians should learn and memorize scripture, just like Jesus does. Jesus has a great mastery of scripture. Christians should wield scripture to overcome temptation. When we're tempted to sin, we should have scripture in our minds that we can quote and say, no, that's not the right thing to do. Christians should draw life from God's word, knowing that we don't live on bread alone, but we live by the words that come from God's mouth. His promises, his words give us life. We should not test God, but rather have full faith, believing, full of faith in God's provision and protection in our lives and not needing to test God, but rather just having faith in him. And Christians should worship God and worship God alone. We should forsake all other idols. We make other things the ultimate thing in our life. But really, in truth, God is the ultimate thing in everyone's life. He is the creator God. And so Christians should say, I'm forsaking all other idols and I'm worshipping God alone. We should follow Jesus's righteous example. And maybe there's one thing on that list, there's one thing from that passage that you need to take away this morning as a challenge. Perhaps you haven't been baptised and you need to say, well, that I need to follow in Jesus' example. So I'm, I'm going to go to the church and say I need to be baptised in water. Maybe you need to get better at learning and memorising scripture. And maybe you can say this week you're going to learn two or three verses off by heart so that you can use them when temptation comes. If you want help with that, ask me what good verses there are to deal with certain sins or or verses that I find very helpful that I've memorised in my own life. Maybe you need to start drawing life from God's word. You do feel weary and, and this week you need to take time to draw life from God's word. Maybe you need to fast this week to remind yourself that you do not live on bread alone, but you live by the very promises and words of God. Jesus's righteousness serves as an example to us in Matthew chapter three and four. But that is not the primary reason why Jesus' righteousness is important. I want us as Christians to follow Jesus' example, and I want to, in my own life, follow Jesus' example. But if you read Matthew chapter 3 and 4, and that's all you take away, that I need to copy Jesus, that I need to follow an example, then you've misunderstood the crucial importance of Jesus' righteousness. Because this, 
What I'm about to say now is the main point of the passage that we've read this morning. The primary reason Jesus' righteousness is important is because Jesus, the righteous one, can rescue us from the curse of Adam. There's lots of Old Testament references. I've mentioned some of them as I've, I've gone through the passage. There's lots of Old Testament references in Matthew 3 and 4. But the most important reference is the comparison with Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, Satan, the serpent, came to speak with Adam and Eve and to tempt them to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to disobey the commands of God. And Adam and Eve gave in to that temptation. They sinned against God. They disobeyed God's commands. And since that day, every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve has been born into sin has been born into a life of also giving in to Satan's temptations. You know it to be true of your own life. You have given in to sinful temptation in your life. And if you say you haven't, you're deceiving yourself. All of us have lived lives of sin, giving in to Satan's temptations. But now, in Matthew chapter 4, the righteous one has come. And, you know, Jesus faced far greater temptation than Adam and Eve. You know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were surrounded by other trees that they could eat from, great fruit. They were not hungry, but Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And, and then Satan tempts him to disobey God. So Jesus was faced with far greater temptation than Adam and Eve. But Jesus was righteous and prevailed. He did not give in to temptation. He did not do evil, but he obeyed God in everything. For his entire life on earth, Jesus obeyed God the Father in all that he did. His righteousness was perfect. And this righteous one, Jesus Christ, rescues us from the curse of Adam's disobedience. For on the cross, a great exchange takes place. For all who believe in Christ are rescued by Jesus' death on the cross. Because on the cross a great exchange takes place. Jesus, the righteous one, takes our sin upon himself and dies in a crucifixion. He dies a sinner's death. And as Jesus takes our sin upon himself, he gives us his righteousness. Christ dies in our place as a substitute, dying the sinner's death. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He gives us his righteousness so that if you're a Christian this morning, if you're one who has put your faith in Jesus Christ, you stand before God as a blameless one today. You're no longer sinful. You are righteous in the eyes of God, for you have received Jesus Christ's righteousness. And we're no longer called sons of Adam and daughters of Eve under their curse of disobedience, but rather we are called sons and daughters of God, clothed 
in the righteousness of Christ. Now, as I draw to a close, many of you will have noticed that I've missed a most glorious and important part of the passage. I haven't spoken about Jesus's baptism. I haven't spoken about that moment where the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descended on Jesus Christ. And then God the Father speaks out of heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity involved in this wonderful baptism moment. And that moment gives us beautiful theological insight into the love that has existed between God the Father and God the Son for all of eternity. For all of eternity, God the Father has loved the Son. He's always been the beloved Son. And for all of eternity, Jesus has always been the obedient Son, the righteous Son, doing the will of the Father in such a way that brings God the Father pleasure. And so God has always said throughout eternity, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's, it's beautiful. Reflect, meditate on that right now, just for a moment, that for all eternity, God the Father has loved God the Son, who's loved God the Father, who's loved God the Holy Spirit, and there's been love between all three persons of the Trinity. When we say God is love, that's what we mean. We mean the three persons of the Trinity have loved one another forever and ever. But also consider this. When God the Father says to God the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, it's also a wonderful declaration about you and about me. Because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. That brings God the Father pleasure. God the Father says, with whom I am well pleased. He's well pleased with his son because of his son's righteousness in getting baptised. And we have been given Christ's righteousness. And so our righteousness given to us by Christ brings God the Father pleasure. But also we have been adopted into the family of God. So just like Jesus we can say, I am a son, I am a daughter of God. And so God truly says over each Christian this morning, God says this over you this morning, if you're a Christian, you are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I am well pleased. This is the good news of Christianity. All who believe in Christ receive Jesus's righteousness and all who believe in Christ receive Jesus's sonship. And so God the Father is pleased with you. I'm not making this up. Proverbs 20 verse 11 says this. Those of blameless ways are God's delight. God is pleased with those who are blameless. And because of Christ's death upon the cross, we are blameless in his sight. And so we are God's delight. God delights over us. Isn't that an exhilarating thought that the one who created the entire universe delights over us? If we have, if we are in Christ, if we've believed in Christ, God is delighted with us. God is pleased for us. We are his, his beloved children and he is well pleased with us. And so we see in Matthew 3 and 4, Jesus is the completely and utterly good king who gives us his righteousness. King Jesus is the beloved son of God the Father, 
who gives us his status as a son of God. So let us worship and praise him and follow his example in righteousness each and every day of our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the righteous one who overcame Satan in the wilderness. Unlike Adam and Eve, you did not give in to temptation, but you rebuked and defeated Satan. And then you died on the cross in our place in order that our sin might be forgiven and that we receive your righteousness. And for this, Lord God, we are eternally grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for your great victory and your great mercy upon us. Lord, we pray that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we might walk in righteousness, that we might follow in Christ's example, that we might be baptised, that we might be humble, that we might choose righteousness over inconvenience, that we might follow the Spirit's lead, that we might fast, that we might know that life is drawn from the word of God and we do not live by bread alone, that we might not test you, Lord God, but have full faith and that ultimately, Lord, we might worship you and worship you only. Help us follow the example of Christ because we've already been declared righteous and adopted into the family of God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.